We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, and let's uh, go ahead and open up uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your character, your attributes. We thank you for your holiness, your righteousness. We thank you for your wrath, your justice. We thank you for your goodness. From the human vantage point, we don't always see how those things fit together, and yet they always do, and we know that you are good and you are kind. We pray that you might help uh, our community. We prayed and um, ministered yesterday, and we pray that you would bring people to salvation because of it. We also want to pray for the Durso family now that you might give them an incredible amount of grace as they process and work through this uh, tragedy with um, Michael's passing. We look to you because you are a sufficient God. We look to you because you are a God that brings us joy. And so we pray that you might help us as we look at this passage in front of us, that you would help us to be aware of what the text is saying, that your Holy Spirit would work in our own hearts and help us to conform our lives to it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have finally made it to the home stretch. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and the finish line is in sight. We are about to cross over that finish line. Considering the fact that uh, I have been in 1 Corinthians for over a year, I'm sure some of you are ready to move on to uh, other pastures, and so by God's grace, we will do that uh, soon. The final chapter of 1 Corinthians uh, will have some more personal remarks on Paul's part, and at first glance, it may seem... um, ambiguous in order to determine how how are we to apply some of these closing remarks to our own lives individually, and yet I think that there are, as is the case in all of Scripture, some gems here that we can mine in this passage. Just to give you a roadmap of where we're going, I do plan on preaching 1 Corinthians 16 in two parts, and then I plan on after that preaching one concluding summary message of the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole, uh, meaning that including today, we should be, Lord willing, uh, have three remaining messages in 1 Corinthians. Uh, After that, Lord willing, uh, we will plan on moving to the book of Amos in the Old Testament and preaching a sermon series on that book. But for today, there are several uh, issues that Paul is going to address Uh, And we could put them forward in the form of several questions, Um, and these are, as I mentioned, going to be kind of miscellaneous things. It's kind of at the end here, and actually we have had a little bit of an abrupt change because we spent 1 Corinthians 15, rather lengthy passage of Scripture, talking about the resurrection again and again, week after week after week, and then suddenly we're in these miscellaneous um, issues Things that are addressed today are things like what day of the week should the church meet on, Uh, what ought financial giving look like in the context of the church, 
And how are we to make our plans, our human plans, in light of God's sovereignty? And he's going to address these things. Now, I want to remind us of something that we may forget, we ought not forget, but that we do sometimes forget, and that is that all of Scripture is profitable. We know this. We know that God has inspired every word, every tense of a verb, everything in Scripture, uh, as we've said before, every jot and tittle of Scripture, everything in Scripture is profitable. And I understand that some people, when they get to an end of perhaps, say, a Pauline letter like this, kind of put things on cruise control because it seems like Paul is just addressing specific people and situations that have gone on in the past and no longer are relevant for today. But that is not the case. There is much to mine here. And so let's read the passage in front of us, and then we will uh, begin looking at the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." This is going to be um, something that we'll look at really in two main sections. We are going to look at um, Paul's ministry to Jerusalem and then Paul's ministry to Corinth. Here in these first four verses, we see his ministry to Jerusalem and his desire to pull in the Corinthian church into this ministry. We read in verses 1 through 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, that there may be, or that there will be no collecting when I come. You may remember one of the things that we looked at in 1 Corinthians was the uh, repetitive use of the phrase now concerning, which is indicating something that the Corinthian Christians wrote to Paul about. And so he would say, now concerning this matter to which you wrote, now concerning that matter, now concerning this, now concerning that. And so Paul is writing concerning the collection of uh, finances he is answering one of their questions, and he is organizing a collection for the saints in cooperation with the churches of Galatia. Uh, the, the collection, specifically, is for the Christians in Jerusalem. And if you want to know why that's the case, just jump down to verse 3, and you will see specifically that he is talking about the Jerusalem Christians. We also see this um, elsewhere in Scripture in Romans 15, Paul talks about making a contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. 
And so really what we have, quite simply, is a benevolence offering. There are some poor Christians in Jerusalem, and Paul is simply uh, gathering a collection together, and he's instructing these Christians on how to do that. Uh, His instructions are pretty straightforward. He calls them in verse 2 to set aside their financial contributions on the first day of the week, on Sunday. There are a few uh, principles that we can discern from this verse. First is that many, um, maybe even most, uh, commentators agree that verse 2 is a strong apologetic for the early church meeting on the first uh, day of the week, namely Sunday, that this transition had taken place. Um, Of course, Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and there are numerous other passages we have in Scripture, John 20, 19, uh, 26, Acts 20 and verse 7, Revelation 1.10, I won't read all these. But there are other passages that, that teach this. This is just one of several. Um, this means that the weekly worship services did not take place on Saturday, but were uh, shifted to Sunday. It is also evidence that the early church began giving financially at their church services so that part of the worship service, part of worshiping God, included giving to the Lord. Also, it is evidence that the church, that giving to the church is not to be uh, sporadic, but it is to be consistent and it is to be regular, okay? I want to read to you an observation by Albert Barnes that I thought was actually pretty helpful um, that he kind of gleaned from this, this text here, uh, but he talks about the way that we ought to give financially to the church, and Barnes writes and says this, let him set it apart let him designate a certain portion, let him do this by himself when he is at home, when he can calmly look at the evidence of his prosperity. Let him do it not under the influence of pathetic appeals or for the sake of display when he is with others, but let him do it as a matter of principle and when he is by himself. I think that's some pretty helpful advice from Barnes. One cannot help but think of TV evangelists, prosperity gospel preachers, and you've all heard or watched or seen or a clip somewhere where an appeal is made for financial giving, and it's oftentimes a very emotional appeal. There's a sense of urgency. You have to give this now. You have to sow a seed, right? And if you don't sow a seed, then, then God can't work in your life. I mean, God does all this for you that you should, you should do this for him, and you need to give more, and, and you need to, uh, because I need a jet, or I need whatever, whatever it might be, these kinds of things that, that do happen inside of uh, evangelicalism, broadly speaking, in America. Barnes is warning us not to be duped by that kind of nonsense, and I think there's some, um, some uh, reason that we can uh, come to this conclusion based on the text, because Paul does ask for a consistent kind of giving. Do this regularly, the first day of the week. This ought not to be something that's emotionally based, or someone is twisting your arm in some kind of uh, a way. God actually puts a warning in Scripture to the shepherds, to the pastors of Israel, who were abusing this. And he says in Ezekiel 34 in verse 2, something that should strike fear into the hearts of, uh, of pastors across the country, and that is this. He says, Son of man, prophesy against 
the shepherds of Israel, against the people who are supposed to be shepherding and caring for your souls, he says, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And you can read, of course, the whole chapter here for a number of other accusations against the shepherds, all in the same uh, line of thought. The, uh, the, the shepherds of Israel, and even we see today many uh, preachers or pastors uh, across the board tend to give these kinds of emotional appeals so that they can manipulate people into giving for their own prosperity's sake. And what Paul is simply advocating is, a kind of giving. He's not saying the answer to the, the answer to this kind of abuse is not no giving. It is just right giving. It's it's reasoned. It's thought out. It's in proportion to what you are able to give, and so on and so forth. The Corinthians text then says simply that giving ought to be done, and you can see this in the text here, as he may prosper. In other words, in proportion to his own income. Uh, we see this modeled for us in Acts eleven twenty nine. The disciples determine everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so the giving in Acts, the giving in Corinthians, is to be done according to your own ability. It is to be done in accordance with what you're able to give. Uh, Before we came up here to uh, Orville, I was working at a, a lawn care company in Greenville, South Carolina, and as we were preparing to move up here to Orville, um, I ended up walking into the sales room and I was talking with the guys um, and just letting them know that I was going to be leaving and so on and so forth. And um, one of the, the guys was interested in inquiring what, was, what we were going to be doing, and I told them that we we're going to be planting a church. And, uh, and this guy, as much of an unbeliever as you can imagine, um, responded and said, man, that is, I've always thought about starting a church because they make so much money. (laughs) And so you have people not even remotely on the map of being Christian in any way, not attending church or anything like that, looking into the prospects of starting a church (laughs) Or at least thinking about the fact that it could be a good moneymaker. And so what the, the, the lesson for us here is to just be wary and to be cautious and to make sure that our giving is done with some thinking behind it. Um, that it is done with an eye to the Lord. That it is to be done from a generous, we know, heart and a cheerful heart. Yes, it does need to be done in sacrifice. It also needs to be done in wisdom and free from uh, manipulation. Um, we, we understand that giving to the church ought to be sacrificial. Um, I don't think it's wise for giving to the church to be done so that you and your children are living under an underpass, an overpass somewhere, uh, because of that. There ought to be some wisdom in how we ought to do this kind of a thing. Uh, I know of uh, an elderly woman in our own community who, um, gave benevolence gifts to a man until she totally dried up her life savings and went into debt because of it. Um, We need to be cautious in these areas. There's some wisdom that has to be uh, thought through in these areas. At the same time, 
This passage teaches us that worship and giving are tied together. And John MacArthur says this, he says, if we do not give properly, we cannot worship properly. And that is true enough. There is a a, a tie together in these two areas. It is your responsibility and it is your reasonable service to give financially to the church. And 2 Corinthians helps us to understand how this ought to be done. We're, We're just putting a few passages together to help us see what giving ought to look like. And 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, you know, not that your arm is being twisted in some kind of a manipulative way. Um, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Uh, but there's uh, more indication. Not only do we have these principles of what our giving is to look like, but going back to 1 Corinthians 16, we have some more principles about what giving ought to look like in uh, verses 3 through 4. Paul says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, they will accompany me. Now, understanding human depravity means, in part that we are to be very cautious in how we specifically administrate and handle finances so that there is plenty of accountability going on in the whole process, okay? Dishonesty with finances is not a new thing, okay? Paul was building into his instructions right here in 1 Corinthians 16 accountability because of human depravity. And so uh, this is not something new. At the very beginning of the church, this is something that was necessary. Paul does not ask for a bag of money and then he's on his way. He doesn't say, I'm going to pick up the bag on my way through and then I'll see you guys later. Okay? What, is, what does he specifically do? There is a, a, an accrediting process that they're going through. He is specifically, he's telling them to, to choose specific godly men. There is accountability in these letters that are being given in this process, and he's not going alone, okay? He's saying, if I need to go, I'll go with them, okay? But there is to be more than one. There's to be accountability. There's to be letters. There's to be all these kinds of things. Uh, this is why um, we have uh, here at Crossview our own process of how all of this works and in, in the giving and uh, who handles this and so on and so forth, which anyone, by the way, is welcome to know if you don't know what that process does look like. We are to give with wisdom, and we are to give, and we are to be benevolent. That is what we're called to do in this first part. First Corinthians 16, the first four verses, gives us instructions about what giving ought to look like. That's his ministry to Jerusalem. Now he comes to his ministry to Corinth, Specifically, the people that he's writing to. And so we see here in the second part, and note Paul's insistence on continuing ministry, even in the face of great adversity. And this is, again, as I mentioned, kind of some miscellaneous thoughts here at the end of this letter. We're going to go to giving, and now we're going to go to this and that, and kind of put all of these kinds of different topics together. We see his personal remarks in verses 5 through 6, "'I will visit you after passing through Macedonia.'" For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Now, at the time of writing, Paul is in Ephesus. 
He plans on going through Macedonia and then eventually back to Corinth. Now, MacArthur notes that the work of the ministry basically consists of evangelizing and edifying, those two characteristics or those two tasks. He then says this about Paul, specifically about this present text. He says, like a general pouring over a map to determine where the next battle should be fought, Paul constantly surveyed the lands about him to see where to begin his next effort for the Lord. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, I'm in Ephesus, I'm going to go to Macedonia, then I'm going to come to you. And all, for Paul, it's all about ministry, ministry, ministry. I have to evangelize people, I have to edify people, and he's doing this in his own life, and he's teaching the churches to do this as well, that whether you are in a position like Paul and you are traveling around, or whether you are at a local church, your task is to evangelize and to edify You are edifying those who are in Christ, the believers here. You're encouraging one another. And we're evangelizing like we did yesterday at the fall outreach or the fall festival where we are uh, evangelizing people for the sake of Christ. Paul is looking for these ministry opportunities in these three cities, Ephesus, Macedonia, Corinth. And then I want you to draw your your attention to verse 6 in particular. And look down at the passage, and I want you to notice the word perhaps. You see the word perhaps there? You see that in the text, perhaps? What is Paul doing? He, he is yielding his plans to the Lord, right? Do, do we see, where else do we see this? James 4.15. What does James tell us? Here's what you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. Okay? So what we oftentimes use a tagline at the end. In fact, I've, I've said this a couple of times today because as I was telling you, I plan on preaching on Amos next. Okay? I said after 1 Corinthians, we're going to be Lord willing in Amos. Okay? Now, I just want to uh, uh, say that you ought to use the, the phrase Lord willing Okay, I do know that it can be overused to the point to where you say it without thinking about it, okay? So don't do that, okay? Um, but why would we say that? Well, we don't know the Lord's plans, okay? I plan on going to another sermon series next. Um, we saw today as we've been praying for the Durso family that we don't know if we have another breath. We don't know if we will wake up in the morning. Um, we don't know if perhaps some big event would happen, and Lord uh, directs us to preaching a different sermon series because of that or whatever. We don't know. So we say, Lord willing. Paul says, perhaps I will do this. We also see this in Proverbs 16 and verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. When you say, Lord willing, you are saying, God is sovereign, not me. That's what you're acknowledging. And then we see this emphasized even more in our own passage, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord, what? What does it say? If the Lord permits. It is for this reason that we need to be cautious against individuals and ministries that talk as if nothing could come in the way of their plans. Planning is good, okay? I don't think that 
the Bible calls us to live by the seat of our pants, okay? You know, we're not to do that. We are to plan, okay? We, we are to do that, but planning, uh, not planning at all is a sign of laziness, but plans must be done with what? Your hand is open. You make your plans, and instead of clasping it like this, you make your plan and your hand is open that the Lord may take that away from you. Um, and here we see in um, verses 8 through 9 the remainder of this plan. Paul is holding this plan with an open hand, and this is what the rest of it is. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Again, he is looking for ministry opportunities, and in the midst of that, he's saying, I'm making these plans, I'm holding them with an open hand, perhaps this will happen if the Lord permits, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, so on and so forth. And by the way, in all these plans, there's a lot of adversaries. G. Campbell Morgan said this, he said, if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. Um... Now, I think I, I want to maybe just modify that a little bit. I think it's a good quote, and I think it generally uh, conveys what's going on in the passage here. But I think I would reword it and say this. If you have no opposition in the place you serve, either you're serving in the wrong place or you're serving in the wrong way. What I mean by that is um, G. Campbell Morgan is saying, if you have no opposition where you're serving, then you need to go serve somewhere you're in the wrong place. I would say that you could serve anywhere on the planet, and if you are serving Christ faithfully, you will receive opposition there. To, to some degree, I, I, I recognize that the opposition is not equally distributed across the globe, okay? Um... I mean, we know this, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, okay? So what, is, what do we say about people who are not being persecuted? I realize that in America, our persecution is not like the Middle East, okay? But if you are receiving zero opposition, completely zero, nothing, then there's an issue going on. Um, you will, if you are faithful to Christ, receive something of some sort of opposition or persecution. I think that there is a strong biblical case to be made for this claim. If you don't have any opposition or persecution, then you are doing the Christian life wrong. Does anybody oppose your work? Does anyone disagree with you? If the answer is no, then you have to wonder whether you are serving Christ faithfully. Are you sharing the gospel? Are you preaching the word? This does not mean, by the way, that persecution or opposition is God's seal of approval on your life. You cannot say, I am being persecuted, someone is opposing me, therefore God is pleased with me. It doesn't work that way, okay? 1 Peter 3.17 says you could suffer for doing evil, Right? You could, you could do evil and suffer, and you can't walk around saying, God must be pleased with me because I'm suffering. Not all opposition is because you're a Christian. It could be because you're just a jerk. And we need to know the difference between being a Christian and being a jerk, right? 
there are different reasons why people oppose us. Um, Paul's final remarks in today's text are about Timothy. And so we see in verses 10 through 11, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. We know, so, so Paul gives this kind of, at least in today's text, the last statement here. He gives this statement about, hey guys, put Timothy at ease when he's with you. What's going on with Timothy here? that he needs to be put at ease. Well, we know from a few other passages a little bit of what's going on. In 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. So we know Timothy is young. We know that um, people may look down on him uh, because of his age. He doesn't have enough experience yet. Uh, we also see in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, where Paul writes and says, God has not given us, a, or God has given, for God gave us, there we go, a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, which may mean that Timothy was prone to fear himself, um, perhaps because of his age. Um, nevertheless, Paul instructs the Corinthians to receive him, not to despise him, and also to help him, which is a reminder to us that youth is not always synonymous with immaturity. It may be in some cases, but it's not always the case. And add to this, by the way, old age is not always synonymous with maturity. Okay? These are general truths, and so in this particular case, Paul is specifically saying, uh, don't despise him, uh, Timothy, don't be afraid, so on and so forth. All right, so... I kind of feel like we've been all over the map here. Here's this, and oh, by the way, here's this, and oh, there's that, and it's just all these random and miscellaneous truths that he's been putting in this last chapter. And so the question is, where do we go from here? And I I want to spend a few moments here as we think of how to apply this. Uh, Today's text is really a mixture of several different principles. As Paul wraps up this letter to the Corinthians, he's giving us a bag of miscellaneous thoughts. But all of these thoughts or all of these principles, all of the things he says in some form or fashion are centered around the topic of ministry, how you ought to give in the context of ministry, how we ought to uh, do benevolence giving in the context of ministry, how you ought to make plans in regard to ministry and evangelize and edify and so on and so forth. And so the first section is concerning the ministry to Jerusalem. There were impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, and Paul was concerned that he was going to collect money for them and send it to them. And so for, the, for this section, the main application that we can take away from verses 1 through 4 is to simply be a generous giver. That's what he's calling these people to do. Set your money aside, set it up regularly. One of the reasons, by the way, we didn't talk about earlier, one of the reasons to give regularly or weekly, as he's talking about here, is because if we... If they would have waited until Paul came to give, okay, they would have probably already spent all that money. But by setting it aside regularly, there is something to be able to give. I don't. I I think um, probably weekly giving is is best based on this. Um, but I don't think that's um, uh, something that is 
required. People get paid bi-weekly. Some people get paid once a month. I've heard of people getting paid once a year sometimes. Uh, and so uh, the, the important part is that it's regular, that it's consistent, that you're not waiting to the last minute, and that you're just giving regularly. Um, so, but the application here is simply to be a generous giver from that. Uh, we, we can add to this that we ought to be wise in our giving. We ought not be lured into foolish giving by uh, listening to pathetic appeals, as we saw earlier. We ought to give with accountability, so on and so forth. Um, and at the end of the day, though, add all these principles together and all these things that we've seen, simply be a generous giver. That's first. Then in the second section, we saw that Paul was concerned with his ministry to the Corinthians. And so the, the first application from this section that we can take away is the necessity to add this caveat to all of our plans if the Lord wills. Now, interestingly enough, we have even Jesus Christ himself providing us with this model, the Garden of Gethsemane, you know this passage in Matthew 26, 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, could speak to the Father, pray to the Father, and say, not as my will, but your will be done, all of us must do the same. Anyone who wants to claim that you're above Christ in this regard, <laughs> we're not. And so we ought to um, use these words as Paul has used, the word perhaps, maybe, or if the Lord permits, or Lord willing. We can simply summarize this application this way. Yield your plans to the Lord. Whatever your plans are, yield them to the Lord, knowing that he may change those plans. The third application uh, that we can take away from this passage was actually suggested to me in some of the reading that I was doing preparing this week. Um, and uh, it, it, at first glance, it may sound like, is that a legitimate application of that passage? And I, I think that it is. I'll let you judge that. Um, but this specific application makes the observation in the text that Paul had a strong commitment to people. I mean, his whole life, Paul's entire life is, resol- is revolving around loving God and loving people. He's willing to be stoned for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to go to jail for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to be, go through all of these kinds of different levels of persecution because he wants to obey God, so he, he loves God that way, and he loves people. So there is an urgency in his ministry to preach the gospel to people, regardless of the personal cost. Okay? That's, I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of preparation for this particular application. And so the application is this. Cultivate deep relationships that work through conflict rather than dismiss it. Um, the, the way that, that uh, this application was presented in my study and prep work was don't skip church. Okay? 
or don't be a church hopper is the way it was presented. In other words, Paul is giving us a model here of what it looks like to work through um, edification and to work through ministry regardless of the cost. And in the same way, it is easy for us in 21st century America to the very moment that we have conflict with another person to go find another church and to go find another church and go find another church. Those of you um, who've gone through our membership class know that one of the things that I mention is this very issue, and that is don't come to Crossview Church if you are coming because you have unresolved conflict somewhere else. It is not, there, is, there is a good reason to leave a church, and I would say the reasons primarily are theological in nature, but uh, a really bad reason to leave a church is, well, I couldn't get along with so-and-so, and I'm just going to go somewhere where it's easier. You bring yourself with you, okay? <laughs> and you bring all those issues with you, kind of thing. And so this application makes that observation that uh, we ought to be committed to people and to um, working through conflict rather than dismissing it. In a culture where you are told to cut out all of the toxic people from your life, and you guys ever heard that before? Cut out the toxic people in your life, okay? In a world where you are told, cut out the toxic people from your life, and in a world where everybody is toxic, (laughs) it's hard to think of trying to work out these conflicts and these problems and all these kinds of, okay? If you listen to that advice, you would have to go find a, a deserted island somewhere, okay? In fact... You couldn't even do that because you could not get away from one, there's one toxic person you can't get away from, right? And that's yourself, okay? <laughs> you can't, we're going to have to work through this because there's nothing that we can do otherwise. The easy way out, the easy way out is to go to the other church in town, to give up, to do whatever, but we are called to press in, confident that the gospel is sufficient to restore broken relationships. Now, I will add here as we um, wrap this up, and that is that we must trust the Lord for these things. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, meaning you have not repented and believed on Christ, you do not have the proper equipment to obey the imperatives in the passage today. You you are insufficient for the task. And if you are in Christ today, you also are insufficient for the task, but you do happen to have the equipment that is sufficient for the task, and that is union with Jesus Christ through the gospel. Through repentance and belief in Christ, we can work through these kinds of issues. Through repentance and belief in Christ, we can be cheerful givers, knowing that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and so on and so forth. And it is through Christ and through the gospel that all these things are made possible. And so if you do not know Christ, the final application would be to repent and believe on Christ because he is sufficient and he is enough. Thank you, God, for today, for this passage, for your grace. We pray that you might help us to apply these things, help us to honor you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.